gardeners, farmers, compost enthusiasts, and growers. Welcome to The Healthy Garden, the show where soil is important and growing a healthier world is job one. Welcome, gardening friends, to episode number 34, Gardening in the Heat. It's the dog days of summer. Well, it's not really the dog days of summer yet, but most of us have already experienced some hot, hot heat. And I don't mean that indie rock band from Vancouver, British Columbia, who had a couple of hits in the early 2000s. I actually liked their song, Bandages. It was it was decent for a Canadian band. Just kidding, Canada. We are slipping past the edge of spring and moving closer and closer to June 20th, the official beginning of summer 2020. I was going to call this episode Hot Gardening or Hot Gardening, but my producer wouldn't let me. So gardening in the heat it is. Fall doesn't begin until September 22nd, so we've got a long haul through the next 100 days. And I don't know about you guys, but this has been one heck of a spring. Physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. The roller coaster kicked off the beginning of March and never stopped. Spring started back on March 19th, which seems like a decade or two ago. It seems like years instead of months. The one good thing that has come out of COVID-19, a.k.a. the coronavirus pandemic, is that people have really taken to gardening. And gardening to heart. Because what else were they going to do? And hopefully because they realize that health begins at home. And with the food that they eat. And that we eat. And also reducing as much stress as possible at a time when stress has been at a maximum. I know I almost flipped my lid a couple of times. And I am a relatively reasonable, rational person who turns most of my stuff over to God in my morning prayer and meditation. So over here at Ritchie Ranch, our urban farm, we've had an extremely successful spring in terms of crop production and soil and garden health. You know what I care about. Soil health, that is where it all begins and ends for me. Hopefully you guys have picked up a thing or two from Norma and I and have become soldiers of the soil. Remember that from the new Victory Garden episode? If you haven't been working your soil, you still have time. Hang on a second. I just looked out the window, and as far as I can see from the studio, the world has not ended, which is a good thing. And that means that you still have time to get the garden prep for the crops that you can get into the ground now for a summer and late summer harvest. Also, If you haven't cleaned up some of the stuff that looks like it's crematorium ready, then do so now and get that end-of-day spring garden ready to crank out some serious food, some wonderful exercise, and fabulous meditation opportunities over the hot, hot days of summer that are coming to you and your garden.
Hey there, summer gardeners. You're going to hear some really cool gardening tips to fight the heat in the last segment of the show. But for now, write these down. You're going to want to use a clean, healthy, farm-made, true organic, and non-GMO compost in your garden this summer, along with a great compost tea. You want Booze Blend Compost from Malibu Compost and their teas, their compost teas for plants, trees, and shrubs, fruits, vegetables, and tomatoes, or flowering plants and roses. Get all of these now at your local nursery or shop, or get great deals online at malibucompost.com. dog days of summer actually mean? As someone who was born in the year of the dog, I'm always interested in dog stuff. Bow wow. I always thought it meant that the dogs were so hot in the summer that they would be laying around anywhere they could find that was shady and cool and so that they could do what they do best, which is sleep. The other thing they do best is eat, and I'm not even going to tell you what the third thing is that they do best. The dog days of summer describes the hottest part of summer, which is generally between July 3rd and August 11th each year. The phrase is actually referring to the time when the sun occupies the same region of the sky as Sirius, the brightest star visible from any part of Earth, and the part of the constellation Canis Major, the greater dog. Sirius is sometimes called the dog star. Sirius rises and sets with the sun in the summer. And on July 23rd, it is in conjunction with the sun. That day, the dog star is so bright that in ancient Rome, they believed that it gave off heat and added to the sun's warmth, which caused a long period of hot, sweltering weather. The Romans referred to this time as Dies Canicularis, or the dog days. So, from July 3rd to August 11th, the 20 days before, and the 20 days after the alignment of Sirius with the sun, for centuries it has been referred to as the dog days of summer. What that means for us gardeners is that time is running out, and we have very little time before we have to get prepared to battle the heat with the necessary force to pull our gardens through in the healthiest way possible. This made me think back to the settlers of the original 13 colonies. If we think we have to go through a lot in the summer, think about those hardy folks. I was thumbing back through some of my earlier research and found a few things that I wanted to share with you about how the colonials gardened in the summer months without irrigation, air conditioning, or a fridge stocked with ice-cold beverages. 
Gardening and farming back then was a full-time job for the settlers of the 13 colonies, a job that they had to do every single day. The thing that I see in common with us and the early settlers is that growing food for us is now becoming more and more a necessity in terms of food safety and security. We've just learned that maybe there isn't enough food in the supply chain when catastrophes strike and we can't rely on big ag and big food to feed us. And if we do rely on them, that could be a very costly mistake. I mentioned this before because I love it, and I'm going to bring it up again. The colonists started seeds indoors, which I find fascinating and super cool. To start their seeds inside, they dug up sod in the fall and stored those clods in the root cellars over the winter. Then they planted seeds in the inverted or upside-down sod clumps next spring. That's an amazing trick. Today, we start seeds indoors in speed trays and cups, on heat maps and under grow lights, or in well-lit, naturally-lit rooms. This is a great trick to remember, and one that we could use if there was ever a time where we lacked electricity or we were forced into an off-grid situation. Their inverted sod method worked well for crops that didn't like to be transplanted. They would literally bury the entire hunk of sod in the garden in the spring. Did any of you do that this spring? <laughs> also in the summer, the colonial gardeners and farmers spent endless hours of planting, weeding, cultivating, and dealing with pests. Their pest control methods were interesting, and I want you guys to try a couple of these yourself if you want. One of them is to place fresh onion skins on cucumber hills to control squash bugs. Another thing they did was they scattered ashes on plants to control, control insects. And another, anybody ever have a slug or a snail problem? I'm sure none of you ever have. <laughs> to take care of your imaginary snail or slug problem, scatter cabbage leaves between your plants. Then in the morning, collect the buggy, in quotes, leaves and burn them. But for most of you, you guys can't burn them. So what you're going to do is you're going to put the leaves in a Ziploc. You're going to seal it shut. And then you're going to say, nye, nye. Another common trick. <laughs> Another common trick for pests in the colonial days was to take mayapple roots, which are toxic, and then dry them out, crush them into a powder, and use them as an insecticide for crops. They would soak seeds in the root powder to eliminate pests before planting. Anybody do that this spring? <laughs> you may wonder, what did they grow back then? I did. They grew potatoes, carrots, cabbage, beans, cucumbers, asparagus, pumpkins, leeks, gourds, squash, onions, and herbs. I grow a lot of those things as well. I guess I'm a pseudo-colonial gardener. Everyone grew corn. They grew flowers, fruits, and a variety of grains. One of the other cool things that the colonials did was practice companion planting. They planted squash and maize, which we're going to call corn, and climbing beans. 
To plant the three sisters, they would mound soil and then flatten the top for each group of crops. The maize seeds, also known as corn, were planted in the center of each mound. Then, when the corn reached six feet tall, beans and squash were planted alternately around it. The beans would use the corn as a structure to climb up. It also provided the nitrogen needed by the other two plants. The squash acted as a ground cover that helped reduce weeds and helped the soil retain moisture. It's pretty cool, huh? Companion planting is still popular today, and it works. Remember, they also did all of this without an air-conditioned house or a hot shower to run to after a hard day's work in the summer garden. I think we're getting off easy so far, don't you? Lastly, but also really critical for the colonials was not only did they have to grow enough food to get their families through the winter, they also had to find ways to preserve it. And I wanted to run through a couple of ways that they preserve things. This is something that Norm and I find really important and one of the things that we are working on in the garden to become more proficient at. Here are some of the ways that the colonials preserve their vegetables. They would take the French, lima, and sugar beans they grew in the summer and layer the young beans in a stone jar with salt. And it would go like this, a layer of salt, a layer of beans, a layer of salt, a layer of beans, and so on. When the jar was full, a coarse cloth was tied on top, then a board laid on top of that, and then a weight on top of the board so it kept it closed. It was stored in a dry cellar, then before they used them, they would soak in water for 24 hours and they'd have to change the water often. For whole beans, they'd dry them in their pods and string them on long threads and hang them to dry in the fall. Later in the winter, the beans were soaked, then cooked at length to produce what they'd call shucky beans, often called leather breeches. For kidney beans, they'd pickle them. They'd string the beans, then soak them in salt, lye, and vinegar for 10 days. After 10 days, they'd put them in a kettle of water and scald them until tender, then remove the beans and cool. Then they'd put them in white wine vinegar and salt. They'd keep them in a cellar all the way through spring. That is some serious gardening, my friends. A lot of preparation, a lot of dedication, I'm going to talk to you about what we do in the summer garden and how you can take a little bit of the heat of the dog days of summer. It's Norma, biological farmer and producer of the Healthy Garden Podcast. Did you know that even if we have drip irrigation, it's still good to hand water? In fact, in the summer months, we need to hand water often to make sure the hot sun doesn't bake the soil to the point that it gets hydrophobic. 
If we just allow the drip irrigation to do the work, there are always areas that the drip doesn't reach, and those are the areas that need attention. Because if all areas get the moisture they need, then the microbes will continue doing their work and give the plants what they need too. So make sure to supplement hand watering in the heat. I was just looking up at what the highs for my neck of the woods are in June, July, and August, and I feel like I might need a cool sip of lemonade just mentioning this. The highs for June where I live are 88 degrees. We hit that today. In July, the highs are as hot as 95, and in August, 97. Although I can remember several days last year that hit over 100 gulp and one period last summer where we got scorched with hot hot heat no not the band but with temps up to 112 and 114 degrees that was the day that i told you guys in another episode that i brought all the shade cloth that i could find and turned my yard into a big tent city What happens to my favorite part of your garden, the soil, when the temps get like that? Well, things slow down. The biology, the microbes do what we do and slow it all down. Mineralization in the garden, the breaking down of nutrient by the microbes basically comes to a massive alto. And they are just hoping that somebody doesn't forget to water the garden because the microbes need moisture to survive just like we need an Arnold Palmer after 18 holes. Soil temperatures can be up to 10 degrees warmer than your air temps in the summer. And that means on my 100 degree days, my soil temp could be 110 degrees. Holy guacamole. Mariachis, please. The current soil temperature where I live is 95 degrees. The air temp is 85, thereby proving my point before we had the fabulous mariachis. You know I love mariachis, right? In fact, mariachis, please! If you want to know what the soil temp is, you can get it the easy way or the hard way. The hard way is you go out with a soil or compost thermometer and stick it into the soil of your ground. Or you can go on to www.greencastonline.com tools forward slash soil temperature to get your temp that day. And it has some really cool features that you can go back to last year and see what the temp was. And it even gives you a five-year-ago read. It's a pretty cool thing. So I guess step number one, or actually tip number one of my gardening in the heat is 
One, what's the soil temperature? If you know that, you know whether the soil is baking in the sun or whether you're all right to go another day before watering. Tip two, water. This is going to be the key to the summer garden. In some places like where I live, you have to water in the early morning and the late afternoon or evening on those 90 to 100 degree days, especially if you have a hot, dry wind blowing. The wind will evaporate the moisture even more. For your containers, this combination absolutely wreaks havoc on them. You definitely will want to check the water twice a day on all of your containers when it's really hot or really hot and windy. The other thing I want to say about watering, watering in general is that we've got to look at our plants, our gardens, our soil. People say all kinds of things in terms of how they know when to water and how much. I've heard the inch a week rule. I've heard the other, every other day rule. I've heard the when I remember rule, when my wife makes me rule. All good, all valid, but the truth is, is the only way we really know is by watering, letting things get a good soaking and then watching to see how the plants react and how the soil reacts. If you haven't watered in a while, your soil, the most important thing in your garden, might be hydrophobic, meaning that it's dry and it might be a little crusty and it's actually repelling water. For people who use irrigation systems, this can be really bad because the water might just be running off and never soaking into the soil. You need moisture to get to the root ball and to the roots of your plants. For me, I don't like irrigation too much. It's okay for the lawns and an overhead spray works great. And it's also areas where you've got different types of landscape planting. There are plenty of micro spray units and water efficient heads that deliver enough water to the plants without overspraying the leaves and the sidewalks. And by the way, sidewalks generally don't need much water. And drip systems always leave me wanting more. They dribble out into the areas at the base of the plants, which will eventually get moisture down to the roots and the root ball. But the one thing that drip systems definitely won't do is help grow the biology of your soil through, through proper moisture absorption. There's no water anywhere in the concentrated areas. And for me, that is three minutes in the penalty box because I want those microbes hydrated and ready to do their job, which is feed your plants, because I want all of the soil in the entire garden to get moisture. This works if you live in a spot with a lot of summer showers, but if you live anywhere else that is a least bit arid, then this is a no-go. So do what I do. Move to tip number three, compost. First, I make sure that there has been lots and lots of light top dressings of good, clean, safe, healthy, finished, true organic, non-GMO, farm-made compost put on my garden all throughout the year. I especially make sure that my soil mixes are super clean, healthy, and safe and have up to a third of my compost, as I mentioned a moment ago, in the mix. The soil that is in my raised beds and food growing containers have had the healthiest of the healthy soil in them with plenty of good compost to hold moisture, feed the soil, and feed my food. You got to feed my food, and you do that 
by feeding the soil with microbially active and nutrient-dense soil that gets watered by hand with a watering wand. I water all our food, our fruit trees, our raised beds, our pots and containers, and the food that I'm growing in the landscape with a wand. I feel that using a wand gives me the most control and allows me to really study the absorption rates and to dial in exactly how much water my garden needs. My hot, hot, hot. Remember Buster Poindexter? That actually was David Johansson of the New York Dolls, one of my favorite bands ever, but I digress. So my hot, hot, hot gardening tip number four is to get busy on containing those bugs. They're coming to get you, and you better be ready with an arsenal at the ready. What's the first thing we do? Told you this before, we check the garden and especially the food garden every day for signs of little terrorists eating holes in our leaves and munching our fruit and veggies. If you didn't do it in the spring, it's not too late to add a nice mix of beneficial nematodes to the soil. If you find cabbage loopers or tomato worms, pick them off and squish them. For spider mites, use ladybugs and lacewings. For whitefly and aphids, use ladybugs and lacewings. Also, yellow sticky traps are great and Dr. Bronner's peppermint soap that recipe of one teaspoon to five gallons the ladybugs go after the aphids we had some ladybugs go to town on an aphid infestation this spring and within a day adios muchachos I really want to bring out the mariachis again right now but I won't okay Last bug of many bugs. I can't list them all, but here it is. Coddling moss and leaf miner use parasitic wasps. But to know if we have bugs, we have to be watching and monitoring our healthy gardens. Tip number five is compost tea. For the veggie garden, apply compost tea as a soil drench once every three weeks. A soil drench is equal to a normal watering, and if you've been watering by hand, then you'll nail it. The teas also feed the biology, the microbes in your soil. Again, this is the third time I'm saying it, the most important part of your garden, which helps in breaking up clay soil, creating better tilth in your soil, and lastly, breaking up organic matter to feed your plants. The tea also gets the major and minor nutrients immediately to the root zone for uptake by your plants. And anytime your garden looks sad, give it a good compost teaing. Tip number six, if you're growing food, harvest on time. Don't wait for stuff to bolt or get overripe. This can create disease and will definitely invite pests into the garden. And some of the pests I mention here are my least favorite, ratones, rats, 30 rats. There's only one way to keep those, those dudes out. Set traps frequently and harvest regularly. And my final tip, tip number seven, lucky seven, hopefully not seven years in Tibet, is having shade cloth, stakes, and ties available to put shade covering on your lettuces and other plants that might wilt or burn in a serious heat. This might be the only way that you save some of your favorite plants from a fate worse, no, actually from death. I pretty much saved most of our garden last summer with this tip. So that's it. Stay cool, stay in school, have fun in the sun, use sunblock, 
entertain wisely, eat all your vegetables, and enjoy your gardening in the heat. That concludes this episode of the Healthy Garden Podcast. Please post your questions on the Healthy Garden Podcast pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week to learn more about how you can free yourself from the chemical and synthetic trap that's been set to keep you from growing a true, organic, and healthy garden. Until then, happy and healthy gardening.